You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. Joining him is everyone's favorite coach and hair model, Chris, a.k.a. Tex McQuilkin, Power Athlete's Director of Performance. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. The most powerful athletes don't just guess at what program will yield explosive results. They rely on coaches like Tom Newman of Yale to find the best balance of strength and speed. Sports science only gets better with advocates like him on the cutting edge of performance. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin. Tom, welcome back, man. It's It's been a long road. We catch up each conference seems, but now I'm, I'm glad to bring you back to Power Athlete Nation, and, and we got a lot to talk about today. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much. And again, it's been awesome to watch you guys continue to grow and put out good information and, and really kind of attack it from both the professional side and hearing some of the coaches that you've had talk about you know their journey, but then also too, actually getting into real training and actually making you know instruction and different courses and programs for people to actually train their athletes better. So it's been awesome to see you guys grow. Thank you. Yeah, our previous conversation was awesome because we were talking about the, the very cerebral approach that you took to tra- training the Ivy League kid. Uh, so if you guys are interested in that, check out episode 344. But a lot has transpired since our last conversation. I'd love to the chance to, to lead off with the journey that you've taken the past year. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah, I mean, again, as we talked last time, being able to be around such a collection of individuals, and I say that kind of holistically at Yale, where you have people that invented the MRI, you have people that are world experts, just right around the corner. And the thing that I learned the most about when I was there was how many people are willing to help, but also too how siloed things can be. And so, I don't know, I guess it was too dumb to be scared. And so being able to go over to someone and say, hey, come over to the weight room. I know you're the chief, you know, surgeon of say hearts or you're the you know brain surgeon or you're the, you know, whatever from the engineering lab. And people were more, more than excited to be able to come and actually come into the weight room. And it's so funny is that I think we take for granted music blasting everyone's fired up everyone's excited and that energy in the weight room a lot of regular people have never experienced that and as soon as they get in that environment you can see their demeanor change their body language change and again the weight room is one of those few places where it doesn't matter about the outcome it's just about competing hard and being a good teammate and i think we manufacture that every day uh, for the athletes but to regular people um, a lot of people go to their jobs and punch in and punch out and there's not a lot of uh, excitement and energy and so that was really kind of great to be able to do that and and learn so much from all those people so that was really great and then uh, as you alluded to earlier um when we last spoke uh i had reached out to um the guys at hawk and dynamics um for looking at force plates for the new building we were building um after the lacrosse championship and as i got to know them i was really impressed impressed with what they were doing but also to their mission uh, being able to take a technology that you know was traditionally reserved for a research setting but now bring it out to the masses because i know as we've talked, um, my mentor, Bill Kramer, he's been doing that stuff um, with Rob Newton and some of those guys and uh, Heckenin back in the day in the research setting. Well, now we're able to do that stuff in our weight room. Mm-hmm. And so that was really interesting to kind of be there um, to start to implement that. And so as I got to know those guys, I had the opportunity to go with them. And, and the position of chief innovation officer is about making sure that when we build stuff, that it's practical. 
and we talk about every day in our meetings, we don't just want to be a company that just, okay, we can, we can do this graph, we can show you this metric, you know, and it takes up time, but there's really no benefit. We, we try to own the rack. So when we talk about three jumps in 30 seconds, we want to blend into your practice, not, you know, cannibalize it. And I think that's obviously too, we'll get into it. There's this rub right now of, you know, data science and analytics, and then old school, we don't want to do anything um, with measurables or metrics. And so we've done a really good job of getting into that middle road and getting people to invest that one to two minutes to be able to gain some insight to then obviously do better training. And that's kind of where I live in the world with both customers and then also on design side, making sure that we're using things that actually help the practice um, and ultimately help the athletes. So that's kind of like a, I don't know, 30,000 foot view of what's gone on on the professional side of things. Can you dig into a little bit onto the force plate and more importantly, what you guys are doing in terms of how to develop athletes and like, you know, really the, uh, the way I understand it is obviously like a, a major function is injury reduction, you know, looking at like uh, putting a set of movements that reduce injury. Cause I mean, I think that's the way you usually sell to these schools. I mean, performance is one thing, but now you start talking about injury reduction and uh, making healthier athletes. I think that's an easier sell. Yeah. And I think too, you have to be really careful in injury reduction because there's been some people in, in the space and don't need to get into names, but um, the only way to event, uh, avoid injury is uh, don't play sports. You're that is, going that to is have, a true statement. You are going to have injuries. But when we talk about what a force plate does and kind of how we fit it within our paradigm is that it's a high fidelity assessment of your movement. So can you go a hundred miles an hour? Yeah. Yeah, you can. But also at 100 miles an hour, you better have good tolerances and good feedback on how your brakes are at. And again, the duration and longevity of your cooling system, of the oil system, and all these different subsystems that make up locomotion, um, you got to keep an eye on those check engine lights. And so when we can prescribe a load, uh, it's either beneficial uh, or it's not. And then there's this gradient in between. And so I don't really like to say injury prevention. Um, I like to say that you know, you're measuring that movement because injury prevention comes down to the coach. If I show you a graph or a dashboard, but you don't have a good relationship with the head coach, it's irrelevant. If you go up to a kid and every time a single metric goes a little askew, um, you're going to create paralysis and doubt inside the athlete. And so how you use that data to be able to be an effective driver of competition, um, there's an art and science to that. And so we always talk about, you know, less is more, keep it simple. We're not trying to take a half hour every day in a lift to, you know, do just testing. It's a quick, hey, hands on hips, you know, hey, do a depth jump, integrate it actually into your practice, go do a heavy back squat. And I want you to hit singles and doubles until you can't hit 95% of your peak power. There's different ways to layer that so that the, the testing isn't testing in the classical sense, it's integrated into your training. And we drive performance. If I can get you more powerful, if I can change your impulse, if I can, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, recruit people that are twitchier and faster than you, um, you know, that helps a program. And so it's really kind of got a bunch of different tentacles and trying to make sure we, we use the appropriate uh, approach for each of the customers is kind of what we do. Um, force plates in general, like I said, is really about making sure you have quality assessment of that movement that's happening. How much are you really sharing with the athletes? Um, you know, you brought up a good point about this idea of paralysis. And sometimes, um, you know, the athletes, too much information just ends up uh, resulting in, you know, like an inability to do something. So I wonder, with a lot of that information, is the coach taking it in and kind of directing the athlete? Are they really sharing the information with them? Or is it really just based upon each user? Yeah, sure. I mean, each user has their own problem. And so we had um, Adam Petway on our, our uh, podcast and he talked about the big mistake a lot of people make is they start measuring things with no intent versus starting with a question. So if I'm in season monitoring a team, 
I have a much different approach than if I'm taking someone back, say from an Achilles uh, rehab. So from a rupture and post-surgical and they're not competing. And one of the things that we've done is we've got, basically you've got your tablet, that that's the workflow environment. So that's for the coach at the rack and you're gonna deselect out of the 77 something plus metrics of a vertical jump. You might be looking at two or three or maybe one or two from each of the phases of the jump. Um, and you're gonna use that to then make your decision. And again, that's a check engine light um, type scenario, not a freak out and panic. It's not an in-depth conversation. It's literally like, you're gonna do lift one, you're gonna do lift two, or you're gonna do lift three. On the backside, yeah, you're getting all that data, it's stored. And so whether you export it into R, whether you put it into a, uh, a different athlete management system, you can really do those deep dives. So feedback loops become important. And I would say kind of at the rack level, those conversations are ahead of, have are being had ahead of time. And then on the backside, when you do a postmortem, like, did my program work? You know, training's really evolved, you know, from its kind of infancy of, hey, I'm gonna come follow you, John. I'm gonna come follow you for six months and see what you do, right? And this is how he got that text. I'm gonna follow you. And you know, he still gets there, but he takes a different route. And we've had this apprenticeship kind of model going all the way back into the times of Sparta and the times of, um, you know, early, early military history um, throughout the world. Now we're really taking that leap into a scientific approach where you got to know what this stuff means, you know, mass times acceleration equals, and if people say like lift more, that that's not right. So <laughs> we need to understand why. And there is a time too. And I think you have to remember it is strength and conditioning, you know, not sit and analyze, you know, you might have analysis as part of your program, but you do need to actually make people stronger. Like you're going to have to do some hard stuff and strength is is reserved for the few um, that put in that commitment because strength takes years and years to be able to fully develop. I know you had Louis Simmons on and, you know, he talked about when he's dealing with guys at the top, you know, five pounds, 10 pounds, that, that is a multi-week, if not multi-month commitment just for that little bit. And so we can see that now, we can see that change and we can see strategies change. We can see outputs change um, throughout time. So I think it really depends on what your goal is, but again, working and crafting with each customer, what do they need today? But then as they become more more familiar, just like a program, they're going to evolve um, how they use data with their practice. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you referenced the talk we had with Louis. I mean, Louis was so impactful for me personally. The idea of like strength, you know, maximal strength, obviously being the outward goal, but uh, not at the expense of being able to move fast. You know, so power, I always thought is you an individual's ability to display their strength dynamically. And, you know, for me as a former football player and the things I do, um, being extremely powerful and dynamic was the end goal and uh, too much strength. And I, I ran into this early within my first NFL, year in the NFL where I pushed my strength so fast that my speed decreased so much that all of a sudden uh, as I was out there playing, I was like a planet with little planets orbiting me was the analogy I use. And there was definitely like for me an issue where almost and I, actually it turned me to read super training. And I remember there's a piece in there where they talk about the shot putters. Um, you know, figured out like 200 kilo bench was ideal to move a, you know, 16 pound shot dynamically, anything over that, the time and the effort that it took actually decreased their ability to move dynamically with that 16 pound shot. And that was so, as I was reading it, it was like one of those slaps to the face where I'm like, oh shit, that's happened to me. So now, you know, uh, but the problem or the thing now with, you know, tendos and force plates, I mean, there's so many ways to actually test this more so than the only measure we really had was, you know, a stopwatch or some form of maximal weight, like how much can you move your three RM or you know uh, three reps for speed? And uh, right. um, it's so jiggy now, I wonder, um, you know, the education piece, I guess now is so fundamental where you guys have this technology, um, you know, is a big piece of that educating coaches on how to use it or more importantly, the creativity to use it. 
Uh, yeah, I think it's the education of what it actually means. Cause there's a lot of stuff right now where people just don't know. And again, I would like to think that I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do. I think I'm pretty good at development. Um, but every single day when I've got, you know, some of the best biomechanists in the world, you know, talking on our calls, you sit there and you're like, Oh, so you have to be humble, right. And open that window. And sometimes they'll say things not as a, as a researcher, not as a practitioner, but I go, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like that's kind of, you know, I buy that. And so when you start to see those two worlds overlap, it really helps you evolve. And again, I never had this kind of time to be able to go in and, and learn about breaking force or understanding about, you know, you know, maximum force at minimal displacement or looking at all these different, you know, aspects of velocity, because, you know, we were also trying to make sure kids went to class. We were making sure that they, you know, ate their breakfast. And so again, being able to really take this time to really kind of do a deep dive, but then also appreciate what's coming. I think that's what's been really exciting. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, power and speed. So we think about that as an output, um, but then the strategies to achieve it. And so if I asked any strength coach, would you want all your kids to jump four inches higher? They go, oh, absolutely. But if I said, when that happens, their longevity might be shortened. And I, and I don't want to say injured, but longevity would be shortened by 40%. Would you do it? And they're like, ah, right. And that's where we yes. always say, <laughs> yeah, what school are we at? Uh, if, are, are we going to win? If we're at Alabama, uh, yeah, because I got five five star recruits on the depth chart. I yep. do. For uh, Yale, nah. Uh, when you were talking well, about but, mu like music for Yale weight room, I just imagine like uh, classical, Beethoven, Mozart, <laughs> Frederick fucking Chopin, you know? I mean, music <laughs> like that, you're like, we're getting hyped on Chopin today. <laughs> it was not Chopin, but we, uh, <laughs> we did work with them. But I think where it becomes interesting is that, you know, that high school athlete, the one, the population that you guys talk about, just because you can, does it mean you should, or do you have to put more rebar in the concrete before you start to go up? And I think that now, and just even working with some of the, some volleyball athletes this summer, someone's vertical jump went up three inches, but then we started seeing asymmetries start to mm -hmm. come out on the landing. Mm -hmm. and, and landings that never were an issue before. But now that we jump higher, we're now playing in beach tournaments, we're playing in indoor tournaments. Well, suddenly now that's a load problem because most of your technologies are going to boil down to like three things. One, you're not strong enough for the demands that you're asking. Mm. Two, your sport coach has a disproportionate load for you. And again, that could be that we're running too much or that we're jumping too much or there's some sort of practice um, intervention, but also potentially um, overload happening. And on, flat, on the flip side, it's this kind of fear mongering because every single person, and again, going to private sector now, every coach is petrified, petrified of losing. Like they, whatever they do in the weight room, don't, don't hurt them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this idea of uh, risk aversion and then this fear. And the problem is you do have to do something because the undertrained athlete um, and the overtrained athlete, they actually look the same when they go out on competition. If you talk about a sport like football or you get into anything where there's a collision, you don't do your athletes any service um, by just doing clamshells you know, for six weeks, right? You do actually have to get in there and move it and learn how to do it. If you don't know, check out resources like the stuff that you guys are doing or, or webinars or you know practices and, and get better at your craft. And so I think that the data is pretty much solid on saying that we know there's this effect of as performance goes up, there's these strategies that better be in place. We see it in business, we see it in medicine. And so how do you as the practitioner, you know, dose along the curve? Uh, I had a strength, or sorry, my offensive line coach in college, a guy named Tom Cable, um, used to tell us that you have to break a lot of eggs to make an omelet. And uh, that was his analogy for like the training that summer and everything. He's like, we're gonna break a lot of eggs. And we're like, well, what happened? The eggs get broken. He's like, well, we gotta make some omelets. And that's what they have surgery for. And that was, uh, I mean, it was true. It was, uh, you know, same thing Louis Simmons told me, you know, to master Kung Fu, the training must be severe. 
So, I mean, there's a really interesting balance of like, if you're going to prepare individuals for something like football or these contact sports, like the training has to be representative of what they're going to do on the field. Like there's no way to, you know, hit them with pillows and expect them to go out and crush it on a Sunday. And, uh, you know, and I, I know, you know, when you get to the NFL, I mean, they're not necessarily into something like development, you know, you show up and I remember I got drafted second pick in the fourth round that I walked in and I figured, you know, I was going to back up and maybe play into a position. Shit. They cut all those old dudes in front of me and I was the starter. And they're like, we drafted you to start. I'm like, in the fourth fucking round? And they were like, if you couldn't play, you wouldn't be here. So I think that there's an interesting piece for that. But, you know, now all of a sudden you go back to college and there's a, you know, maturation phase where you're taking kids that are in this transition from, you know, really kid to an adult. And it's such a, a vital piece. And I think for Power Athlete with uh, our bedrock programs, um, you know, those initial programs of getting those kids introduced to weights and getting them strong and effectively the analogy, uh, you know, folding the steel over and over again to create strength and, and all these other factors, but giving them enough time and opportunity to be in that crucible to actually be able to do something. Right. And knowing what's enough. And I think that, you know, as you mentioned before, historically, training has almost been a selection process. So the cracking those eggs, well, but now if you crack those eggs, you end up in court. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to defend that? Uh, Tom right? Cable should have been sued numerous times. So, I mean, I never met the guy, but I can tell you that there's enough that we know about performance that you can make some pretty strong dudes and you can make some pretty strong ladies. Like when you walk into a weight room and see a bunch of ladies squatting over 300, that wasn't an accident, right? And when you see guys walking in and it's 500 across the board, that's not an accident, but having some merit. And I think that the days, the olden days of, all right, we're going to do this. If you, you know, if you do it, great, you're a champion. If not, you know, that's on you, right? And I think that those days uh, are gone, if not soon to be gone, because you can look and say, that probably wasn't a great idea. You know, there's a school right now in an active lawsuit where, you know, they were doing runs, roped everybody together, um, tied them together and ran in a line up a hill. Somebody uh, had undiagnosed uh, medical condition and, you know, died tied up in the line. Like, what are you doing? Well, mental toughness. And I think that that's not mental toughness. We, we can measure that. Like certainly mental toughness is something that we know exists and we know how the body performs, but that's just reckless. And yeah. so making sure that when you understand what you're doing, have a thought, have a methodology and look at what their training logs have said. Louis would go through and start rattling. He does that thing when he rattles off all the numbers and percentages again with his population, with the guys that he had, there was a methodology. And I think right now, especially a lot of young coaches are struggling to kind of find out what their methodology is. Like they're trying everything all the time. They use really big words. Um, and I would you know, tell a lot of my students and my staff, there's um, that sushi uh, documentary that's on uh, Netflix. So the, I think it's I Dream of Jiro where he talks about with his son for 25 years, he didn't get to touch the fish. He had to make the rice. And when I ask a lot of young coaches, you know, go make the rice. Like, can you do it right? Can you teach a squat till you can't get it wrong? Or do you have like a limited set of tools? And you know what, if it doesn't work, then that's on them. And I think that that's really kind of where we go. And that's where a lot of the, 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 the best coaches I've ever seen are the ones that are 30, 40 years on the platforms. They can look and with one comment, with one cue, they can change someone's biomechanics. And it's not this word vomit of mm -hmm. stabilization and all the other stuff and this, that, and it. Well, you guys still, they're weak, right? Well, they're not ready. Well, we're not that fragile. The human being isn't that fragile. And I'm kind of glad that this error, you know, of the correctives, it was weird. We went at the functional movement, you know, entire paradigm kind of got really weird there for a while in the 2000s yeah. where like everyone was super fragile, like BOSU balls and all this other like circus. Uh, I stuff. think it was the FMS um, led that somehow, unless you had a very good overhead squad and you could do all these things like you shouldn't play. And I, I mean, I saw it happen in real time. So 
um, when I moved back to, when I went to the Chiefs, I moved back to California. I started training athletes performance with Verstegen and those guys in uh, Carson at the Stubbs Up Center, um, Home Depot Center at the time. And they were putting everybody through this FMS. And if people were failing the FMS, they were basically putting them into these like different mobility kind of like stabilization movements uh, to try to get them to, you know, basically master the FMS. So I go through it and I didn't get a good score the first time. And I was like, hey, man, give me like five minutes. Let me do it. No, no, no. We don't want you to redo it. I'm like, let me fucking redo this. And I went back and passed it just fine. And uh, I was like, well, dude, I'd never done this before. I didn't understand what you wanted me to do. At least let me have a chance at it. So they would bring people in and they're teaching them like, you know, how to embrace their core off of these different hip thrust, single leg movements. And they would teach them all this stuff for like six weeks, put them back in the FMS and be like, oh, look, look at the progress you made. Never really forcing them to do anything heavy. And I remember kind of getting pissed and being like, you're going to ask these guys to go out to an NFL training camp after having them fucking just doing single leg hip thrust lunges or did different things on a, um, you know, Kaiser fucking rotation. And I'm like, dude, you, you're not doing anything to get these guys ready to go play football. All you're trying to do is get them into position to pass the FMS. And, uh, that was where I got a little fucking hot with them. But I feel like there was this idea of like, oh, we have these functional movement screens and there's all this mobility shit. I'm like, at the end of the day, man, like these dudes have to be able to go survive the demands of what you're doing, which is basically throwing their body on the funeral pyre and setting it up and letting them go out and fucking kill each other. And I don't think any of the bullshit you guys are doing is necessarily helping them get where they need to go. And then, well, I think, but don't you agree though? I think that the essence of that coming out of say the bodybuilding era and some of the kind of just brute strength and, and, and bodybuilding and powerlifting and Olympic lifting, they all kind of like smashed together um, in the nineties and everybody was trying to figure it out. By that point, most college strength and conditioning programs had something that looks like today's kind of modern approach. And the idea was that, yeah, mobility is important, and then the pendulum swung way outside to we can't possibly load you. And again, I think about that as strategies. And I'd be really interested to see, say you take someone with a 30-inch vertical and say nothing else changed. Which strategies did they sit deeper? Did it take longer? What was their contact time like? How did they absorb the landing? And, you know, again, if they played left tackle and, and we laugh because we've talked about um, with some other coaches, well, you know, they're favoring their left side or they, they have this asymmetry. Well, they're, they're left tackle. Like you need to know. And I think also in these sport paradigms at these larger universities, you need to have context. Like sometimes they're going to be beat up. It's preseason football. And if you know that they play center versus if they play tackle, that's going to be really helpful and give you context to how you look. And again, we never want those strategies to swing so far wildly out of the norms that there's a compromise to the system. But conversely, to your point, John, like if you're just weak, you're going to get run over and then you get hurt because you were weak. Sure. So it's this again, it's a multi-access problem, not just, oh, this is the only way. And I think I hope that ends soon because I think still people search for what's the magic pill. Well, magic pill is that you recover, you train, you lift, you be a good training partner, you use science to help you lift heavy things or move things quickly or to move things quickly repeatedly, but you still have to do it. And I think that that's really where I think that the future is going to be headed is the people that can combine those two old school principles um, with informed uh, movement. I think you're going to have a pretty powerful tool. Well, for me, um, my strength coach uh, in college is a guy named Todd Rice. And uh, Todd was pure Olympic lifting, snatch, clean, and jerk, front squat. Uh, we did a ton of plyos and sprinting. And I think what we did in terms of that pure Olympic program and his plyo stuff was good. I think if we could have incorporated a little more bodybuilding into it, um, just because I think uh, if you can find a marriage between some dynamic movement and a little bit of uh, bodybuilding, I mean, like looking at like the Chinese Olympic weightlifting team, 
Uh, I've seen some of their videos. The guys are extremely dynamic, carry a lot of muscle, and do a ton of bodybuilding work for accessory. I think that there's an interesting balance between, like, you know, uh, Louis Simmons' idea and, um, you know, uh, Fred Hatfield compensatory acceleration, being able to move heavy loads dynamically, mix a little bit of bodybuilding, some sprinting, you know, little Cal Dietz type stuff. I think that's kind of where everybody's going. Where now, so you're looking at different, um, you know, muscle contractions in different ways and not everyone's going no i, the I would intelligent, think would, the intelligent people would tom, tom's got a good finger on the pulse of the network going to all the conferences and meeting the coaches and traveling so he's a lot more uh boots on the ground yeah so we we are aiming to educate and empower the coaches to well, take we get one like step an further. interesting piece because we go to um, i mean i know you go to more conferences but for me like something like summer strong but i always worry too that we're going to you know a land of the you know, preaching to the converted type of thing where people are kind of bought in on this. And when we do meet, you know, more traditional type strength coaches, we're always alike. Mm, interesting. Well, we're in a position to empower and educate. That's why we got switched on dudes like Tom. Tom, you mentioned uh, apprenticeship, and that's the way it's been since the Spartan Mint. You had a great opportunity to uh, be an apprentice under Dr. Bill Kramer. And we utilize on Field Strong a lot of his tools, especially the metabolic conditioning and metabolic circuit, man. So I want to spend some time with that. Speak to the uh, the metabolic circuit, the history, aka the Husker, and your experience with Dr. Kramer. Yeah, I mean, I owe that man so much stuff and so much credit for just everything, both on a professional side and on a personal side. And, you know, it's crazy. You can pick up the phone and, you know, he'll, he'll return your call. It's crazy. You know, what does he need to return my phone call? But I, I never forget that and how humble he is. And again, he's got a persona of, you know, this big researcher, but people forget, you know, he was a wrestling coach so he can get after it. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that he's done in his research comes from that applied coaching side. And so I got a chance to meet him at one of the conferences, uh, introduced by, by Boyd, uh, Epley. And so that was probably back in maybe 08, something like that. Um, and then just stayed in touch. And I was just that annoying kid who just kept calling and sending emails and what should I read? What should I do? And we were very fortunate enough to have him reach out, do seminars at Yale, um, come and visit. And again, you know, when you bring him in there and people look, well, who's this old guy? What's his story? But then you see him go in and coach the hell out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. People, people haven't seen that. He brings up drills that, you know, he, he's kept in the back of his head for 20, 30 years. And when he talks about when he met with Boyd back in the 70s and 80s to build the Husker, um, that's crazy. And then all the stuff that he did with Jerry Martin, you know, at UConn, how do you go men and women championships and all the stuff, they leveled up a division in football, like leveled up. And the research that they were doing with so many things was so far ahead of its time. And so the fact that he spent time with us, we were super blessed. Um, And as you alluded to that kind of seminal work that he did with the Husker, I mean, straight up, the goal was to put on more muscle on the guys in a short window of time and beat Oklahoma. And it's ironic that we're doing this here today because uh, if you've you know been watching, you know it's tough to see one of those traditional programs kind of struggle. Um, but we tried to use a lot of the stuff that in the past worked. So from our assessment and testing um, with the Epley Index, so we use that. We also, on that training, would really, really dive into programming. And I think that another thing that's overlooked right now, people want to look forward towards technology, but they also need to look back at what you did. I want to know. So when you go into the metabolic circuit, you need to be able to move 30,000 pounds to really get a kind of systemic effect at about 50,000 pounds, 55,000 pounds. And again, this is in a 36 minute, you know, work ratio. Uh, You're talking almost 100,000 pounds workload in an hour. That's a lot. 
-hmm. And so you get this giant hormonal pump um, that then affects any of the tissues that you activated the day before through heavy lifting. So no, we, we've been using uh, versions of the metal. I mean, uh, I first did it probably in 96. We did it in, you know, 95, 96, 97. I mean, it was really when we came back from winter conditioning, that was the first thing we hit. And it was, uh, you know, I mean, I laugh now. They had uh, trash cans next to every squat rack because people were puking because, of course, we went too heavy. And then after you go through the first time, you kind of realize like, hey, I'm not going to just sandbag this first one. But I'm going to give myself a chance to be successful and then kind of go into it instead of getting crushed the first day. But no, I mean, it's uh, it, it's been genius for um, a lot of people. And we've used it extensively. I and mean, we use it every year in our training programs just because it's been so effective. Yeah, it kicks off the annual cycle of Field Strong. And we swapped out some of the movements. So I want to go through the Nebraska circuit order. So we got a squat or a leg press station one. So Tom, explain the what were our expectations of executing the circuit and I'll go through the movements. So one minute, uh, 10, 10 reps. So take us through the, essentially the, the formula. Yeah. So you got these nine stations, right? And you have 20 seconds to perform your lift and whether you do it or you don't. And I noticed you guys, um, use the traditional, uh, one minute rest, uh, off the back. We didn't, we just did a rolling time. So it's 20 seconds to complete it. And then you had 60 seconds and we actually had an audio tape and the kids still talk about, they have nightmares uh, of this where it says, go set one and everybody goes set two, set three. Well, as soon as you finish and you roll the rack two, set one now waves in. So it was like a conveyor belt of gains that would just run. And so it would just go and we'd have the music playing. We'd have the, the Husker going in the background um, and you would go up on the clock. So if the load took more than 20 seconds, you cut them off. So you got to move quick. It's like 0.8 uh, to one, one meter per second ish kind of ballpark range. Um, but as people fatigue, they start to slow down. And so it's important that you don't push so hard on the load um, that you cut into that rest time outside that 20 seconds. So we mm -hmm. would do that. So that would be the squat um, was that first primer movement. And then the same methodology was applied to each of the different stations down the line. This is how we did it. Uh, it so, we, we had, there was a tape and it yeah. was like, doop, doop, go. And then it would cut. But when we went, when I adapted it over for us, uh, we couldn't get people to keep on time because they, a lot of people were training by themselves. So it was easier once they finished all of a sudden hit a clock and do 60 seconds. Yeah, I'll get there. So almost two different populations. We got uh, Coach Newman leading badass motherfuckers in the weight room. And then we got the power athlete dude training in their garage solo. So we let off with the squat, the leg press. Then we bench press, chest press, uh, lat pull down or chin assistant. Uh, leg curl, shoulder press, low row, leg extension, tricep push down, and what's awesome, Nebraska circuit finishing with the arm curl. Did y'all finish uh, same formula on those movements when, for Yale? Yeah, we were we we're pretty close on that. So we went squat, um, and then we went uh, seated seated row. Uh, then we'd go to the bench, and then we go to lat pull down to offset those to build in that time. Um, and then there was a push press. We played around with it. And if you talk to Boyd, they used, I don't know if you guys have used the push pull machine that they built. I, I loved it. I got a chance to use it at the alloy gym. It just takes up so much space, but like talk about from an ab standpoint, you push and pull, um, mm -hmm. in the ground-based environment. And again, Boyd said, he's like, the goal of this was to recruit as much tissue as possible. Um, but also if you got off plates or machines or the barbell, any of the body weight stuff, it became tough because. Um, especially larger individuals like a lineman can't do chin-ups. Um, and so that's where that lat pull, and we would try to titrate the load 
to whatever the most amount of weight they could move in that 20 second window was um, each time, but then tracking that tonnage um, throughout. So, and then we finish up with the, uh, like you said, the the arms. By the end, you're pretty smoked. Oh, yeah. So, and again, as long as you got those in at the end, uh, that was fine. But it's about 260 reps total. And how did you manage the the day to day? Because you're not doing the same circuit over and over. So Mondays, did you take advantage? Were you doing explosive movements? What was the action and approach to the days you were not doing the circuit? Yeah, I mean, great question. So if you go back and look at some of the original manuals, Boyd had those kind of as either uh, light power or light strength. And so they would alternate um, because that Husker would have a, uh, a heavy day and a light day. One of the things we talked with Dr. Kramer was, well, that was at the time that we did that back in the 80s and 90s. What we know now is remember, anabolic hormones only bind to um, tissues that's been activated and been used. And cool. cortical steroid uh, hormones um, impact all tissues. And so cortisol is going to try to really eat away at your development. But on the flip side, if on Monday, say you were working, and John, to your point about the bodybuilding, you might hit a specific region that you need to develop, but you would do it at a very low RPE and you would do it at a very high intensity. Um, because again, you can only, you know, grow the tissues that you use. So we started playing around with, you know, three by three and four by one and really trying to do heavier, low RPE, high intensity with whatever we could get away with. Um, and then that secondary day, think of the, the Huskers almost like a bath. Like it's a bath of testosterone, growth hormone, and everything. So you'd want to bathe that body um, in those different regions. And so it was good. And we also started looking at if they weren't ready, if you're up at 50,000 pounds, if you move that in 36 minutes, we might default that Friday workout and roll. So Huskers traditionally ate workouts over four weeks, but some of our bigger guys needed more recovery. So that might extend out six weeks as we went into the, the spring program. So we would look at that um, if there was defaults or if people were struggling. Yeah. Very I, cool. I had always wished that, um, because we did it, I mean, obviously they would give us a, you know, a workouts to do over winter break. Um, I can't say that we did the conditioning or the running the way we should have. I mean, we would just go lift weights. Cause I mean, it's really hard as a, you know, 18, 19, 20 year old kid. You're like, I'm not going to go fucking run over winter break. So we would do, we would just go bang weights and do the program. But then when we would show up the conditioning aspect, especially for this was super high. And knowing what I know now, um, I wish I had done like a ton of aerobic work and had a huge aerobic base, understanding like, you know, the mitochondrial density and all the effects of having a big aerobic capacity. I always wondered if I had, you know, really just not thought aerobic base was bullshit and it had a big one going into it, how much more we could have done. Because as I think about a lot of the guys I played with, I mean, really their ability to recover in between sessions and more importantly, the amount of work capacity that they had was so low. Uh, that I just think that a lot of these dudes were just fucking out of shape. And, uh, you know, we sprinted, we jumped, I mean, we did all that, but that's more than that alactic, but just that kind of low endurance, you know, 70% of heart rate for, you know, 30 to 45 minutes, a few days a week, probably would have just paid so much more dividends for those guys. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because if you notice, uh, you guys um, you guys were true to form on the, the baby Husker. So doing one set, doing two sets, people would look at that and they would laugh and they'd be like, oh, whatever, I'm not going to waste the time. Like, no, 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 that, that half of that is to see how your body buffers. And that nausea, the vomiting that you talked about, um, we went into that kind of extensively in our, in our podcast with him about that. And that's the, you know, he always talked about the hydrogen ions. So when you have these big contractions and the buffering, why do, you, why do your muscles stop after, you know, you do... A certain amount of reps there's a buildup of hydrogen and so that buffering process we know we can train that up in about four to six weeks we started utilizing i don't know if you guys have used the rogue bikes or the assault bikes oh yeah um 
we started using those. And what's really interesting is that uh, we go into winter break. Doc, what would you do? And he's like, I do bodybuilding. We're like, oh, no, what about Olympic lifting? He goes, I can tell you right now. And again, this is where it's Coach Kramer comes out. And he goes, nobody's doing that shit. <laughs> he's like, you know what you do? He's like, go do some bodybuilding, some true like shrugs and bicep, like whatever things that you would hate to have to deal with, but put it there in the winter. The guys will love it. And we're like, well, but you know, what about, he's like, trust me. He's like, but throw in at least twice a week, the bikes. And so we started using um, his protocol, which was the 20 seconds on 10 seconds off, but for 24 rounds. And so dudes would come in and we'd give them cutoffs because you couldn't just slog along. Like you had to hit your peak wattages. But it was interesting is that we stopped having guys show up and losing those first two exposures because their buffering was so high. Mm. And if you haven't tried it, if you can get to 1500 watts on one of the, and again, we use the rogue bike. So I apologize if the numbers don't transfer between systems, but on that bike, uh, it was 1500 watts was our goal um, for the start of your eight. And then you had to try to average or at least maintain 40% of that with cutoffs, um, you know, by the coaches throughout. So kids would start to do that. They came back, our participation went up through the roof. And again, those tissues, that area of the back, those areas uh, in the shoulders and, and even in the leg development, because they can use machines because they're off at their gyms at their home. Um, we couldn't do that, obviously, in a collegiate setting. We just didn't have enough equipment. But guys had way better results. I mean, we were averaging 350, maybe 365 pounds of muscle addition um, in a month. And so that was between 3.4 and 3.7 pounds, which is pretty great. And that was with a DEXA scan year over year with the School of Medicine going in. And so you had this leveling up effect. And so that that program, I think, also changes you mentally because it's for a lot of individuals. It's the first time you've ever you know, gone to the twilight zone. It's really, really hard. Um, but as you mentioned in the post, Boyd would wait to that junior year. So that was something exciting yeah. and it was something to do. And I think a lot of young coaches, because it's hard, doesn't mean it's the right time. Yeah doesn't mean it's wrong but again i think the senior coach has a good idea of context of they're just not mentally ready you got to look them in the eyes and if you see fear or if you see that they're not ready you don't want to waste that opportunity um and so again that program is great if used well um and it was something that we used across a lot of different sports yeah no we had a lot of opportunities to implement it and um i ended up figuring out that if i had like a, a longer ramp with a one set two set and then built it up into a light and heavy uh, I got, I seemed to get a better response from people opposed from what I, I mean, did the only analogy we would give when we did it was, uh, just like, just trying to jam it in there. It's like a bad first date. Like, like at least give me a little foreplay. Just don't like fucking jam it in there was the, uh, the way that it was explained to us. And, uh, like having done it and then used it with a ton of our athletes, especially when I, I owned a commercial gym, um, and we're actually training athletes. Uh, we saw that there was a, a need for a longer ramp because guys, like you said, weren't doing, you know, the assault bike. They just kind of showed up and we were like, shit, man, we're going to break a ton of eggs. And we fucked up a lot of people in the beginning by throwing them three sets and really forcing them to hit it. And well, then that's why we went to like the, the longer even, rest periods yeah. and just kind of skinning it because one, it's super hard for a guy who's training by himself to hit those reps and stay on the beep. And we, we aim to communicate this the best we can start light even lighter than you think you're going to start and people always screw it up and they enter into the comments. So we always aim to up ramp and the, the blog I sent you, we did give just a, an overview. So implementing it as they get towards the weeks, four, five, six, then it's less than the, Hey, 10 reps. Then we do focus on, we need you for the, the 20 seconds. So once they're into the program, get more traditional, but just knowing our garage gym audience, 
aiming to help them accumulate. But man, nothing is like the, the I can't even imagine just the, the awesomeness within the weight room that you got going on and, you know, getting on motherfuckers to finish in 20 seconds and then, nope, you're done and moving, moving guys along. So that's awesome. Well, and there's a lot of parallels, right? Because in football, you, you get, you know, how many downs? Like you don't get a fifth down, right? And so there's a lot of parallels. Like you either did it or you didn't. doesn't mean you're a bad person. But that's where, you know, I think in our last talk, you know, it's about did you give maximum effort? Mm-hmm. And I would have a lot of younger athletes might say, yeah, I did. Okay, well, what did you eat last night? Well, what do you mean? Well, giving effort today is by what you did yesterday. Did you prepare for it? What was your, How many hours of sleep did you get? Was it quality sleep? So did you really prepare? And so getting them to understand that there was so much more, especially in the male population, they want to lift. Like guys, especially if they're an athlete, typically tend to like the process to some um, point uh, of being able to get into the weight room. But when you get someone who's really committed, like they're not thinking, you know, weeks long, especially an 18 to 21 year old the world is very insta it's very now but i'm going to ask you for four weeks to be as dialed in as you can so that that way now we've got all this new tissue well are we going to recruit it for strength are we going to recruit it for power are we trying to condition it again i can't go back and give you these weeks so i hope i've motivated you enough to really push the boundary of recovery because that's how you get big do you feel like there was a um uh, like a priming of the pump effect where well, i don't even know if that's the right term but like when the effect when you first put somebody through it that the effects that they got were greater than any other time like uh, that first initial experience with this and then you know obviously you bring in a guy in maybe second or third year to do it but that initial uh, growth or the initial muscle that he put on in that first year was kind of just something fantastic that you were never able to replicate in that athlete later on yeah i think so just like anything <clears throat> the first initial adaptations go the fastest. I mean, how many people have we seen like in a week or two? They're like, oh, I got so strong. Well, if I gained 50 pounds, I'm going to keep gaining 50. It's not a linear development. And so we actually started getting into, Doc shared with us the uh, the Heath Cartwright manual. So if anyone's looked at that, so that's the somatotyping. So understanding ectomorphs, mesomorphs, and endomorphs. We recruited more mesoe. We're able to go in and get a lot more. What was that name, Heath what? The Heath Cartwright manual. So Heath it's Cartwright. how you make your calculator. But that's why we started recruiting at Yale, looking at you know the size of someone's ring finger, looking at their tibial plateau, and trying to map them out against um, you know what our current group was because we wanted to put on muscle. But if I can put on six, seven pounds of muscle on in year one, and you're an ectomorph, I mean we might only get ten percent in your time. So again, as you reach those genetic ceilings of the genetic endowment, it slows down a little bit. And that's where also too, uh, Doc was quick to point out. Remember this is. Uh, this metabolic workout is in a single class architecture of basically it's a whole body load. <laughs> and then your body's like, we didn't die, but we need to build ourselves back up. That mm-hmm. works for a while. But then look at some of Charles Poliquin's stuff where it was much more heavier. And, and we've had people respond really well to the five by five or the five, 10, 20 schemes. Because again, as you reach that top tier, you have to figure out, and I'll tell you right now, we had individuals that thrived in that heavy time under tension group. Um, and more classical body part, um, specific angle building. And we had other people that this kind of hormonal pump um, really was their best path. And we tried to go in without an ego and just monitor the data and say, yeah, you know, this person doesn't grow. This, uh, this person's a really high responder and we're going to stick within those themes and then really tailor their workouts um, around what we saw in the data. Mm. No, I, uh, having done both, I mean, we did time under tension and um, I actually felt that the time under tension stuff made me slower. Uh, I always felt like controlled eccentrics with a, you know, smooth accentuation phase and the most violent concentric contractions 
for me personally, uh, were by far the best, you know, kind of a, a rep range. And I felt that some Apollo stuff, especially with like the actual time concentric movements, like actually played havoc. And actually I felt dramatically slower in everything I did. Yeah. And I think when we bucket people of being elastic bouncy balls, or if they're tomatoes or somewhere in between on how, how they generate their power and force, I don't think you're wrong. But what I bet you is that you go to a bunch of different athletes, how many times were they put into that program? You're giving me feedback. You didn't feel fast. I throw you on the plates and see that, yeah, you're actually correct. Like that modality is accentuating strategies that you already have. But I'll tell you like a wide receiver or say a high velocity athlete, they don't really do a lot of high force stuff. And so again, they might lean one way or another, but then it also throughout time, you have to take that feedback. I mean, we had athletes that, you know, if you started playing with velocities and stuff like that, they they just got so weak so fast. Like they just needed that stimulus. And then other people, they were so strong that it took them forever to recover from that stimulus that we would get some sort of overload towards the back end of the week and blow up the training. So I think, you know, your point is spot on, but if you're a coach and you're listening, listen to your athletes. And if that with the feedback from sport coaches and from your, your sensors line up, you have to be humble enough to say, Hey, maybe there's another way. Yeah, no, my, um, um, my roommate, uh, in college, uh, was super strong. I mean, he benched 400 as like a 17 year old kid squatted 500 coming in and, uh, was, you know, big, real strong. Um, and I remember every day he trained, he seemed to get weaker. And I remember by the time he was a senior, he barely benched 300 pounds, couldn't squat four. And, uh, they treated like it was his fault. And he's like, I just, I feel so tired. Uh, he's like, I trained two, maybe three days a week. I think his deal was like, he would go uh, two, three, two, kind of a, a deal, and it was like, you know, I, I got seven workouts effectively over the over course of three weeks, and he's like, I got super strong. All of a sudden, now we're in a program where we're pretty much training six days a week, you know, lifting weights, running, doing this, and he's like, it was just too much volume. I felt weak every single day, and uh, you know, and of course, uh, you know, in that situation, so the coach being like, shit, man, we're just killing this kid. This guy is not, you know, a big monkey can't handle this volume, but still very talented. What do they do? This is your fault. You fucking suck. You're lazy. We're going to fucking get rid of you because you're a piece of shit. And I remember uh, years later, actually, it was probably um, I sat with Dr. Romanoff and actually was talking to Dr. Romanoff because he was presenting uh, two different training, um, like basically training uh, cycles that that two of his athletes had. One of them he called a big monkey and the other one he called a small monkey. Where the the one and they you know both gold medal high level performers one trained two days a week one trained six days a week and he's like the the quality of this and he goes you know you have to figure out what kind of volume could handle and he's like one's not better than the other because they both got to where they were which are world champions and so there was this whole kind of big monkey small monkey and he gave me some research associated with it but as soon as he said it, it clicked in my head I'm like you know football's a sport that naturally selects for people that can handle a ton of volume just based because coaches are fucking idiots. And they want to practice every day. They want to lift every day because it makes them feel good about it. And um, especially at my position, offensive line, it naturally selects for big monkey. Whereas you get guys that are quarterbacks where, right. you know, I've, I've watched Tom Brady with a, you know, he had a kid right next to him with a little counter and the guy counted every single throw that Tom did. And when he got to like 90 throws, they cut him off and they knew that anything over that was going to negatively affect him. And I saw that, but yet I saw other quarterbacks throw 300 times in a practice. Well, Tom, we did speak a little bit about this last time. Talk to you about the auto regulation that you have built into the program that you're communicating with your athletes that can give feedback instead of blaming them for being small monkeys. Yeah. And I think that when we know whenever we're giving, um, exercise, you have to start thinking of it like medicine. 
So, and, and I mean that really, like you go to the emergency room, it's not kind of like, Hey, Tex, you know what? I know you were in a car accident. Take some Tylenol. John, you know, I know you have a hangnail. Um, I'm going to give you some more Tylenol. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work like that anymore. We know enough about science. We know enough about biology and we know about load. How many coaches have walked in and you look at someone, they haven't even touched a weight yet. And you just see they're slow. They're tying their shoes slow. Their head is down. Their body language is different. You know, something's up. And especially in the environment, like you mentioned with football, where there's a lot of um, tradition and culture about not showing weakness, ego. There's, yeah, there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of reward and, and uh, praise put towards uh, people that speak up because again, they're trying to get uniformity and they're trying to get them to you know be as one. Um, but I think now, and I learned this at, with Yale, is that giving that empowerment and that feedback, like I expect you not to be a wimp. But I also expect you to tell me, did you give a maximal effort? And was that hard? Did you feel it in your hamstring? Did you feel it in your quad? Or was it at, you know, a joint? Was that at the joint line? And knowing what is good pain and what hurts versus what's going to hurt you. And so in auto regulation, all that simply is, is that you have some sort of cutoff as the coach and as the athlete, the where we know. So if I want you to do a set of five at 85%, just one rep at 85, how hard is that? Is that fair? Is that something fair that we could ask for? Like it's doable. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, very doable. But if the kid walks in and we say, hey, I want you to do two two or three reps, your choice. And I want you to tell me how more you can do. Um, you know, let me know how that set goes. And they come back and say, oh my God, I did one. And I ugh, I don't think I could do any more. You know, something's up. And again, this is where your culture has to be legit. Where, okay, if this person can only do one or two more, then five at 85 is not really 85 today or whatever that load. So now are we going to default? And so Jerry Martin and, and a lot of the Yukon guys would put in their writings and some of their old texts that, you know, outside of like a 10% window and drop and maximal strength, we would reassess the situation. And not that means you don't work out, but maybe a high force or high power, high impulse workout wasn't ideal for that day. So we would back out. Also on the force plates, the flexible nonlinear. And so they were using some of the old, old ATI, uh, AMTIs where they would look at peak power and they would just say, you know, if you can't hit 95% of your peak power, you're going to do a different bucket of exercises. Oh, you can't even hit 90% or you're in the 80s in a day. That's a massive amount of change. Ideally, you would look for this stable line, you know, when you're using a metric that shouldn't be flying all over the place. And that's where when we got into flexible nonlinear, there might be up to, I think at one point we had 20, 25 different workouts in our medicine cabinet to be able to address. And that's how we would pick it. I need you to be strong. I need you to stay resilient. And like you said, is Tom Brady a wimp for using that system? Nope. That's his strategy to get his output. But if I use the same strategy with a first year as I did with someone who has 20 something years experience, again, what do you do? You decrease the longevity. And so that's where we always think about the Pareto frontier of output in duration. And, and again, you can sit there and do all the fluffy correctives and this, and correctives have a place, you know, they're fine. I get it. You know, it's like brushing your teeth. You do it every day. Um, but that can't be the mainstay of your program. And then on the flip side, yeah, you are strong, but for your position, for your demand, and then how you got there and how you maintain it really tie into that. And so we're always kind of trying to push to the edge of that frontier, but never to the point where congrats, you now bench 500 but you know, you're going to blow your shoulder out and we, we've killed the longevity of time because again, in the pro level, if I can get you to your second or third contract, that's a win. The high school window is fixed no matter what, like there's four years college. And again, now with the NIL, who knows? Cause you could, you know, red shirt or you go transfer into the portal. You've got this four ish five ish and that's a whole separate topic, but you've got these fixed windows of time. 
where you're trying to accentuate the assets and decrease the liabilities. And I think probably one of my big takeaways was stop trying to chase, oh, you're the number one vertical, like a leaderboard, you're 35 inch vert to a 36. That's kind of irrelevant. You know, if you're a tight end and you're jumping 36 inches, how do you land? You know, are you strong? And so when we think about that sport paradigm, really going after, because remember, if you reduce a liability, that is an asset. And so if you've got five things that suck and I can make it two things, that's gonna get me just as much return as it is if I tried to push. And remember, you go up to these higher level genetic thresholds. Like you think some of these linemen putting out, you know, 8,000, 9,000 watts, that's not normal human. That's a lot. Like, and a lot of people can't do that. And so you need to respect that. So to your point, if that guy comes down and says, you know what, my knees are killing me. Well, if they're putting out 4,000 more watts than average human, maybe I take that into consideration. And I, and I think that that's where we're headed to, that the, the days of the program with the capital P, as you know, Drew Hammond said, are, are over. And I, and I agree with that. I think you need to have a methodology. And I think kids, they jump on the internet. They got their phone in their hand. They can take a look and tell whether you're a nut job, sure. right? So, and again, you should be able to defend and not in, um, not in a questioning way, but you're so believed into your program and the time you've crafted into this program to articulate to an individual why you think this is the best plan for them. And then if you have a good relationship and culture, they should entrust in that. And, and I hope that if you're a coach, you get to the point where you're pulling them back. You know, when they hear the Husker music go on, I'm pulling them back, you know, telling them, you know, hold the reins rather than, oh, you have to do this because I said so. Well, you're talking about having like a methodology, like really a, a blueprint that you're trying to apply to these kids more so than just like you said, here's my program. Everybody's going to do this program. And I was handed a ton of programs I looked at and was like, oh, there's about 50 percent of this I'm not going to do. Uh, just because I knew that this wasn't going to result in, you know, I don't know if guys are necessarily strong enough or intelligent enough to like analyze the program and say, Hey, you know what? Like I trained in these different styles. We did powerlifting. We did, uh, I mean, I, I was extremely blessed to have different, um, I guess influences pretty early on to know, uh, just, it, it was like a one-to-one -one thing. I remember uh, I squatted six ten when I was 19. And then when Todd Rice came in, no more back squatting. I only front squatted. When I front squatted, for you as an individual, for me as an individual, I front squatted 500, I think, for a double, and I verted like 33 and a half inches at over 300 pounds. And you know, I ran rated sub five, uh, right around there. And I mean, people ask me, and I'm like, I don't know. All I know is when I front squat and I get more positive shin angle, I feel faster. My knees don't hurt. You know, so I mean, like there were some really interesting, you know, one to one type things. And they're like, well, if your knees don't hurt, I'm like, yeah, when my knee hurt, I can get into a better position to sprint and I can get more vertical displacement or sorry, more horizontal displacement or, or when I run. So, I mean, there were some one to one things, but then uh, a lot of guys fucking had zero questions about it. They're like, I don't give a shit. I just want to play. So, I mean, I think for me personally, and then when you get these programs, you look and you're like, ah, this has got a whole bunch of shit I don't necessarily want to do. Or, you know what? Yeah, I'll give it a try. And I did it. And I did their high intensity programs, one set to failure on the machines. And uh, we did that, you know, because it was a, when I went to the Eagles, it was a Penn State, um, you know, machine, one set to failure high intensity program. And it was fun. Uh, but then I just get back in line like five, four or five more times. And they were like, no, no, you only got to go once. And I remember like leaving that off season and being like, I'm going to go train the way I want because I know that training isn't going to necessarily allow me to continue to progress. Yeah, I think you right there at the end there, you hit it with the whole point of the program was for you to have a longer, more productive career. You're not, nobody gets paid. And I mean, some, maybe some people do, but the actual reps and sets that you do in the workout, you know, that's not what people are majoring in. They're usually using the weight room or training to do something else, whether it's golf, whether it's, you know, wrestling, whether it's football. And so again, 
back in that time, you know, you didn't necessarily have some of the output metrics because we can go and look right now and look on the plates and see how you're moving because sometimes things don't change. Remember when the first time we started looking at body fat and we started looking at muscle mass, someone's 300 pounds, they might be 300 for four years, but a completely different person. They might completely redo themselves. Well, same thing. I can go and look at how you jump. And, you know, when we first look at it, you know, you get 30 inches, but it takes you so long to get there. The play's over. Or, you know what, now that you got up there, your landing uh, is so much heavier. And we see that, the heavy-footed landing. How many times have we done snap downs and all these other progressions? But now to actually validate that and communicate it, I think that drives the intentionality. Because you can have a kid will be compliant. They will do what you tell them. But that doesn't mean that there's intentionality and that they're really doing a true effort every time. And so I think it's in the best interest of the practitioner to have that uh, humility, but also the expertise. And you know what, if you don't know, don't do it. Well, I went to a conference and everybody else said, well, then if you haven't mastered it or you don't feel confident enough to explain it and articulate it, then you're just not ready to use that tool in your toolbox. Find something else. Yeah, I think this is a good time to introduce the traveling salesman problem that exists in the world of coaching. So you're just aiming to find the shortest way to accomplish a goal or make a sport coach happy or jump to an answer that you may not understand and tell the athlete that they have to do it anyway. So, Tom, you got a lot of experience with this. Explain this traveling salesman culture within the world of sport and coaching. Yeah, I mean, so, again, this was one of the things that we would harp on when we were teaching programming. Again, traditionally, you would go and you would learn from some sensei or some master coach, and they had a method. And that was their highway. That was their interstate to go from point A to point B. And this happens in industries and whether it's investing, whether it's medical, it's why there's apprenticeships, there's why there's residencies, because there is something to be said for seeing how those that are, you know, professional are doing it. But now kind of as we go forward, you see these multiple internships. Well, he does it this way. She does it this way. Well, what's the right way? And the point is we've seen it just even in traffic. Like now you have GPS, that road that you took might not be there because of a mudslide or you know what there's a traffic accident and so do you have the capacity to flex into another program or to make an adjustment and those adjustments are are biologically based you know they're situationally based and so the traveling salesman is a problem that goes on in logistics all the time i have five cities i want you to get these packages out to these five cities and what people don't realize at five cities there's a lot of different ways to do it and in fact if you get into like 10 cities, they actually have algorithms that all they do is try to figure out, okay, well, I can get, this is the fastest route, but this route, you know, the weather is really bad. Or you know what, it's going to cost us more because there's like 20 different sets of tolls. So we're going to lose profit. And so there's all these experts that spend all this time trying to figure out for these major logistics companies, the fastest route, hence the traveling salesman. Well, in strength and conditioning, you know, I think it's something to the order of 10 to the 65th power of possible reps and sets and intensities that you could give someone. That's a lot of cities, right? And now exercises. And that's why I just laugh when what's the best and, and any good coach is going to tell you, well, it depends what's the context and what are we trying to do? Do you care if you get there tomorrow or do you have four years, you know, by going at that speed or that, you know, some of these programs are super aggressive. Like you mentioned, you know, you get into some of those higher levels, say a 10 by 10, more likely than not unless you're assisted, you're not going to be able to recover from that if you're doing that plus your practice plus your whatever. So again, risk reward, longevity and output. And so this traveling salesman kind of really makes you start to think about, okay, what are my parameters? What am I doing? And as you mentioned, the sport coaches want to do this. We, I don't care what city you go to, but we have to go to Atlanta first. 
okay, well, as a strength coach, I, you know, we need to go here and here first. But if you don't have that, how are you able to navigate that? And that's where we would always talk about what is the goal of this mesocycle? What is this goal for the year? And I'm shocked to find a lot of people will say, well, we need to get bigger. We need to get stronger and faster. So you're saying everything, right? And typically programs and try to- training model. You have to train everything at once at all times. Everything at all times, plus coaches are going to go hard. And, and by the way, if they're in college, they're in school. You know, if they're in high school, they've got their other stuff. And so, again, stripping that down to say, okay, here's my focal point. Here's my guiding kind of metric or philosophy that I need to hit over the next six weeks. And then I'm going to reevaluate. I'd love to ask people. I'd say, how'd your program work this past cycle? Oh, it was great. Like nobody ever goes, man, my program really sucked. You know, half the team didn't accomplish their goals. But if you don't have some sort of objective feedback, you know, and we would do program defenses every Wednesday um, in a way to sharpen the blade, not to, you know, uh, make people feel like they're being attacked, Mm -hmm. but to be able to articulate that. Because, excuse me, if you can't articulate it to your staff, you're going to have a hard time explaining that to a sport coach. And so we would go through this practice and really start to get to the point of, yeah, we knew certain things. Like if you didn't do bikes in the winter, like before football, you knew you were going to have to give up a Husker, you know, one or two to get them acclimated. And you knew that the ramp up would be much longer. Well, is that a training problem or is that a cultural problem? You don't think your kids are going to train, you know, because you can't just put your head down and say, well, we're going to do this because. And so giving that feedback. And so that's really where, you know, the best path. There's a lot of roads that lead to Rome, but the path you choose, you know, you need to own that. And I think that's, again, where technology and experience kind of mesh together to make some of these really great kind of informed decisions. Yeah, when we we aim to educate coaches and empower them. So more than 50% of the coaches that come through our education were their first exposure to strength and conditioning education. And we aim to empower them with enough information where they have the social intelligence to get a job, to keep a job, to now approach a parent, a sport coach, and defend their methodology. And a big thing we lean on, principles. And then also for evaluation, simply put, the 3P model begins with purpose, what are we doing and why, practicality, okay, what tools do I have to accomplish said purpose, what's the time frame, how many days a week do I have this athlete, and then finally, as you've noted, evaluate prudence. Did the program accomplish what we set it out to do? Did it accomplish the purpose? And that that is the biggest thing, and I think the technology now is becoming more normalized and to the level at which our coaches are in the private facility, in the high school realm, more accessible to them to then test their purpose to begin with rather than just assuming that it's going to work. Yeah. Cause I mean, just by law of probability, it's going to work some of the time, right? Just the game theory says, you know, showing up to the match, you're going to, you have a 30% chance of winning just by like physically being present. Right. And so then with your coaching and with your, you know, different, you know, guidance, can you get them to 50%? Can you get them to 60%? And that's where you have to be really honest. And I, I've seen great programs, you know, written by, you know, some of my staff at the time. And I go, this is a great program, but just not right now. Well, what do you mean? Well, your, your team isn't showing up on time. Like you don't write your notes. Like you, they don't, they can't articulate to me, you know, what a safety, safety bar is, what a crash bar is, what a trap bar is. They don't understand. And so again, not that the program was wrong given the context. And and this is a, a cool um uh, teaching thing we would do. You go up and ask, what do you see? And just take a young coach. What do you see in the weight room? And they're going to say like, oh, I see the soccer team's lifting. And then you take like a next level coach and they're going to say, oh, I see uh, a soccer team here that's in a strength cycle. Um, and you know, down there, it looks like they're in a, a speed or power program. 
okay. And then you take a senior coach and that granularity keeps getting more and more. Well, this person actually, that's an introvert. This person over here is an all American. This person um, is actually, um, they're actually uh, an engineer and they had a, a lab last night and you know they're on their fourth set of this and their tonnage last week was off by 3%. So we're gonna try to over um, overload them a little bit in this parameter, in this movement. And that granularity gets better. And I think that when people evaluate programs, just know that's a lifelong thing. Like you never ever can learn everything, but if you're not trying to get better, I think that's where people get hung up and it's like, you see the same skin over and over again, everything all the time, everything supersetted, or, you know, we're trying to build up a base. Well, how long you'll build a base? Like it's been two years. Like at some point they're gonna have to smash things. Like we need to get them strong. And a strong program is different than say something that's more based in conditioning or endurance. So be open to that. It's pretty good. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, we, uh, man, like I, I think the issue comes down to, um, especially with like, uh, you know, programs. And this is what I always worry about too, is a lot of times, um, you have like the curse of the gifted where now all of a sudden you bring in a program where you have a coach that's working like, let's say, uh, I don't know, like a top tier football school, like, uh, you know, Florida, Florida state or one of these top schools and they bring in athletes and everything works because the athletes are so gifted that they've effectively recruited the best in the world. And so a lot of times, uh, you know, anything they do, they go have them play the snare drum for 30 minutes and next thing the kid gets stronger. So like, I wonder sometimes, um, you know, if technology can be utilized, especially at those upper tiers to try to improve upon it, because what I worry so much, and I, I ran into this in the NFL, like, um, people are like, oh, do you think it was possible to, uh, take an average person and get them in the NFL? I'm like, not at all. Uh, the NFL is 100% the land of giants and land of freaks. Um, you know, there are dudes there that I've seen do things that I've never seen replicated anywhere else that didn't train. I mean, I played with a guard, Brian Waters, who didn't lift weights for six months and came out and he benched like 535 for a triple and under like uh, under, you know, what was it like two and a half seconds? I mean, he moved the weight so fast. I just like wanted to quit at that point because I trained my entire life and couldn't move that weight that fast. So, I mean, there's just this land of the gifted and these genetic freaks and you see it in college sports, especially in pro in you know college and pro football. So I wonder when you're looking at these programs and using this technology, if there's something that you have to equate for, I mean, obviously, you know, Yale being a Ivy league school, isn't going to probably get those recruits that you're going to get at those other schools. So is there like a, a tiering effect or is there kind of something when you look at these numbers that you almost have to throw out the outliers? Um, so yeah, so we talk about a step function and I, and I, I take, uh, I take that as an offense that if you go look at a, <laughs> who was the leading tackler in the NFL this last year, who had 193 tackles. So Foyer Lewikin, little Yale guy, just saying. We do have talent. I, I'm not saying they don't, but as a uh, – and I know because a, a Harvard and Yale called me out of high school, and they were like, hey, we uh, we can only offer financial aid. And I was like, well, my dad's a lawyer. He makes pretty good money. And they're like, yeah, go to another school. So Yeah, I, I think those talents are there, and I think there's talent at every level. It's just the, the frequency. So when you talked about earlier, you might have a great running back. Well, at some of the top schools, the depth is really what kind of separates people apart. And so when we talk about tiers, and so if you think about like a bell curve, but think about that bell curve in, in three dimensions. So it, the, the Gaussian distribution, right? So you've got a mound, like you've got a, a hill. Well, that hill can be, you know, kind of a flat, like larger hill, or it can be a very sharp point. The stuff that you're talking about, the power, the speed, the forces, the repeatability of those forces comes with ease for the gifted but they sit at this really top of this mountain. And if I'm looking down, the top of the mountain is really, really small. So you're running the risk of overtraining in an attempt to help them 
you might overload them because again, how many people do you know that can bench, you know, 550? Just not a lot. But you walk into an NFL weight room, um, somebody can do that. And like you said, they may just have, they're just genetically strong. So you don't want to overdo it. So yeah, that kind of shepherding them through that time and either inadvertently or, um, you know, by accident, uh, overloading them could result into an injury. Yeah, that's where you can have a lot more flexibility or the programs that worked at that level because at that really top tier, it's a very, very small window. And we see that in any of the, you know, Olympic athletes or anybody that's trained, right? If you walk in day one, it doesn't matter. You can squat every day, like bodyweight squat. You can take a 10-pound goblet. You can do it. But if I bring in a guy that squats 1,000 pounds, you sure as hell better not try to do that the second day or you better have a lot of context. And I think those are easy things for people to see because there's weights on the bar. But people tell me all the time, they're like, well, you know, look at those guys. Like, you don't know how fast they are. Like the linemen in the NFL, you know, the DBs backwards can backpedal faster than most people run forward. But they all do it so it looks on TV. It doesn't look that impressive. But go stand on a sideline. Mm -hmm. Go there and go take a look at, you know, how fast they're moving. And then the collisions. And I think, too, that's where people really would be humbled when you see, you know, three individuals smash into each other at 20 miles an hour. That that's That's just different. And how they respond and recover from that, to your point before, that's a selection process. There's a natural selection through our program. And so how you have to do it. So you do have to analyze. Okay. And first thing that we did, we got to the point with muscle. You know, average guy probably has about 150 pounds of muscle on the DEXA. The NFL, they're putting out linemen at 205, 210, you know, in the semi positions, linebackers, tight ends is 190. Those are 30 to 40 pounds more muscle than average person. Oh, and by the way, the composite of that muscle is super twitchy and their tendons are super elastic. And so it's just different. So I think you need to, that's where I think the apprenticeship does matter, where you have to go and see. Because the other thing too, for those guys, if you walk in and you tell an NFL player, you have to do this, one, they don't. Um, They'll tell you to kick rocks. Uh, And two, you lose a lot of credibility. So trying to work with them, like, how did you get here? You know, and, and even I'd say even at the high school level and the college level, giving an individual an opportunity to give feedback isn't a sign of weakness. It actually makes you a better coach. And then you build off that architecture of whatever, you know, they had demonstrated having positive success for. Yeah. Did you ever have an NFL coach or a strength coach, John, just tell you, tell you how it is? Hey, I need you to do this or else. Uh, no. Um, no, I mean, uh, I, I was always very receptive, um, you know, as long as like, you know, you could give me some form of explanation. I mean, obviously coming from Berkeley, uh, I always like to flex the big brain on people. Oh, the Yale of the West Coast? Uh, well, you know, the number one, oh, actually, sorry, it's the number two school in the world. I think it was the number one public institution in the world. I think the only one above it was MIT. <laughs> I don't even know if Yale was on the list. Uh, so, uh, but I, I was big on, um, you know, hey, like, uh, tell, tell me what we're going to do. Tell me you're going to make me better. And if you can, you know, give me a, something tangible and something viable, I'll fucking run 100 miles an hour. Um, and you know, the bigger one that I think was uh, a little different for me was, uh, my rookie year in the NFL, I got hooked up with a guy named Mauro De Pasquale and Mauro wrote the anabolic diet and the metabolic diet. So, uh, Mauro was doing all my diet stuff. And right around that time, we had just got a bod pod, uh, sent to us. And so they started testing everybody in the bod pod. And, uh, I told, like, we ended up, of course, as offensive linemen, we like to bet on everything. We started testing bod pods and we put actually a huge pot of money for the guy that was the leanest and then also the guy who was the fattest got an award, which was actually a Mr. Potato Head in a plastic bubble. And um, uh, the pot was big. Like, it was big. It was, you know, fucking several thousand dollars. So I dieted it for it and I came in at uh, 306 and I was the only dude in the history of the bot pot at the time that was over 
300 pounds at under 10%. I was 8.6 under 282 pounds of lean muscle in the bod pod. And the guy's fucking head exploded. The guy that, uh, you know, was like their chief scientist came out and couldn't believe it, retested it three times. And he's like, this is a first. So, yeah. um, but I mean, you know, we were doing a ton of diet stuff. I mean, I was, whereas a lot of guys weren't really analyzing their diet, we were weighing and measuring everything. I mean, it was pretty dialed, but most guys weren't doing that. So, I mean, now I think, you know, 20 years later, dudes are super more uh, dialed on the diet. There's so many different more ways to track this stuff that I think that stuff's more attainable, but. Well, I think that we've figured out now too how important nutrition is in the days of just carbs, protein, and fat, or you know, calories in versus calories out. It's like, okay, so I can have 1,500 calories of donuts, 1,500 calories of steak, and you're going to tell me that that's the same? And it's like, yeah. it's not. You know, there's epigenetic impacts, there's you know, gut uh, biome impacts. There's a lot of different things of what you put in, and again, as it responds to your to your training stimulus. I mean, I would have fights with people. It's not healthy to eat 7,000 calories. Okay. Did you ask what position? Did you ask what, you know, the training load was? Did you ask what their training goal was? Did you ask what their practice load was? Because you know what's not helpful, you know, helpful and healthy is to be 260 pounds trying to play, you know, an interior lineman position in division one. Like that that's not healthy. And it's whether it's acute or chronic, you know, I think when we eat for performance, it's not forever. That's not a longevity diet. That is to no. help with something specific, acute to the moment for a couple of years. And then back out and and knowing that I think is super important when you're explaining it to an athlete. Well, that and also uh, eating six or 7,000 calories every single day uh, is absolutely, uh, and I, I tell people, everybody in the world should be able to eat as much as they want uh, for at least a short period of time and you'll never want to eat that much again. What? And I know that when I was eating about 65 to 7,000 calories a day was the day that I was the leanest. And when I cut the calories in half just out of like sheer, I can't eat this much, it was like, uh, five, 1250, 1300 calorie meals spaced out over the course of the day. And then all of a sudden you cut it back and I, I, I watched my lean muscle mass go down and the body fat go up and the body weight didn't change. And I remember that was incredible being like, oh, fuck, I have to eat this much to maintain this. This is fucking awful. Yeah. A number of years ago, I actually, one of Tom's college athletes I had in high school and he, he, not his parents, but the wave of parents that were battling a performance-based diet versus like, Hey, everybody's eating their mom's diet and the pushback that I got from the athletic director and the moms, it was hilarious. Basically pushing towards a hey, more protein, like at least a gram of well, protein per pound kidneys. body weight. You're going to ruin your kidneys on this. Oh, and their heart, man, it was wild. It was DC based school and you know, parents working for American heart association and things like that that were coming after. It was awesome. The battle to uh, you take a stand. Emails, oh yeah. Tap in John to uh, communicate to the athletic director. Hey, we, uh, we got to talk protein well, and I, eggs, eggs. They hated eggs. I, uh, so when, when I was at Berkeley, um, I took a bunch of nutrition science classes and, um, I would have loved to have done more with that, but unfortunately all the labs were in the afternoon and I had to have every class done by noon. So it kind of made it real tough to do a bunch of it. But I remember going in and listening to the standard, standard nutrition paradigm being taught and then, uh, you know, reading, Flex Magazine, Dorian Yates, you know, Road to the Olympia diet and like kind of like trying to pair it up. And I'm like, wait a minute, like this is could not be more juxtaposed than what they're teaching me here in school and what I'm seeing for these bodybuilders. And the one thing I knew is that, you know, while bodybuilding wasn't necessarily athletic performance, those dudes carried an insane amount of muscle in relation to body fat. And so, uh, you know, you start, you know, looking at this and being like, and I remember talking to my teacher, my professor at the time. And she was like, well, you know, there's a stimulus of lifting weights and training these guys are doing. Obviously, they're probably taking some drugs in this whole thing. 
Um, but you know, like if you wanted to look like that, that's probably how you should eat and, and, uh, uh, approach it. And I was like, so what you're saying is that most people don't want to look like that. And she's like, no, not at all. She's like, this is, you know, and it was really interesting. She's like, you know, like, uh, you know, you're a result of how you train the life you lead, the food you eat. And like, it's pretty interesting. And I was like, well, a lot of people look like potted houseplants. And she's like, no, it's cause they eat that way. And so when I got in and I started working with Morrow, you know, the idea, you know, because of course they vilified saturated fat, you know, the Ansel Keys deal. And Marl's like, that's all bullshit. And that you want to have a healthy androgen profile, you got to have enough saturated fat. And there's never been tied to it. I mean, it was really interesting in that original deal because he also painted a lot of uh, Vince Garanda's uh, Stone Age diet, which ended up kind of being a paleo diet with, uh, you know, copious amounts of raw milk and probably handfuls of Dianabol. Uh, so like there's just some really interesting things, but like the thing that was amazing was that when you look at like the way big, strong athletes that carry a lot of muscle in relation to body fat, there's, it's, you know, I mean, it's pretty accurate into one camp opposed from people that don't do that. It's incredible what's possible, but also I would say, you know, I'd say to the, uh, the different athletes, remember muscle costs money. It costs a lot of calories, like to fuel that you know, fat just will go around for the ride. It does, there's no, there's no cost expenditure for the body. It's just, it's there, it's a tank and you know, it's drag, but it's, it's important drag. I think it was a, it was a 10% body fat. That's enough energy to be able to walk from Boston to Washington. Like that's pretty good evolutionarily. Like that's, that's not bad, but for muscle, as you mentioned, we, and we would see, especially in the males, like every five pounds was an order of magnitude. If you go from 165 to 170, 170, 175, you notice this, like just, leveling up of not only how much force they could produce how much power they had but their ability to absorb and take a shock because again from a muscle standpoint we always talked about it as armor mm -hmm. so if you were fast enough and twitchy enough at 160 pounds to play say inside linebacker and somebody else of equal output did it but with more armor say 190 from a resiliency standpoint again that was factored into our spectrum of how we were going to address that so that's why especially early on it was about get strong so that way, when we go to do hypertrophy plans, you can move meaningful tonnage. But in those early days of really, you know, having a breakfast check, having, you know, lunch, and then even figuring out like, you know, you know, you're actually lactose intolerant. Wow. I just, every time I have a, a protein shake, I just, I get the runs like, okay, well let's try this or, you know, whatever. And just, it was amazing to see what a difference that did, not only for their performance, but just quality of life. It's like, well, you didn't do uh, quality of life of the locker room you're, yes. or their roommates. So, uh, I have a gluten allergy. And, um, so every morning my dad, you know, of course, like, you know, my dad was what born in the thirties, uh, you know, childhood depression, you know, fifties deal. You got to have a big bowl of heart healthy grains. So we would get up and he'd pour us this like massive bowl of oatmeal or not oatmeal, but uh, like grape nuts or some fucking cereal. And then pour, of course, non-fat milk. Cause you don't want that extra milk fat in there. And uh, I would, I would wake up, I'd feel great. I would eat this massive bowl. I would go to school feeling like I just got ninja blow darted or somebody slipped me like a roofie. Uh, around after first I'd go in hazmat the bathroom and then it would take me to lunch to fall out of this brain fog to the point where I remember sitting in class falling asleep and I told my mom I'm like mom I feel great when I wake up in the morning I'm ready to go as soon as I get to school like something happens and I have to go to the bathroom and I feel super tired I was literally gluten bombing myself every single day to the point where like it was awful and uh, it wasn't until Years later, I got, a, you know, like a, a full nutritional panel done. And they're like, dude, you're definitely allergic to gluten. I'm like, well, like, could you give me some examples? And she was talking about it. And it took me back to my, like, entire, <laughs> like, elementary, junior high, like, you know, deal. And I remember telling my parents and my dad's like, ah, you know, you're probably brawling this out of proportion. And I'm like, dad, 
And then when I got my dad tested years later, he was severely allergic to gluten. And I'm like, fuck you. You fucked yourself and you t- you hammered us. Well, but that's where you have to be open, right? Like, again, our, our goal was to evolve and survive and everybody's different. And I just, uh, I just, I don't know. I was always shocked at how people try to just cookie cutter the nutrition versus you feel good. Yeah, you're lifting more, you're running, you, you feel mentally clear as much as like you did the exercise, like you're making better decisions and being open to that. I mean, I, I know we had some guys that were so dialed in with their nutrition. You know, one of the guys was like, I need this amount of protein. I was like, well, you know, that, that seems like that's a lot. Like, I forget what it was, but at like 100 and maybe plus or minus 180, 190 pounds, he was like trying to push like 250, 260 grams of protein. But he's like, every time I don't get this, I my lifts suck. I feel terrible and whatever. And again, I'm not asking you to do this for 40 years. Like we have a small window of time. And again, you know, you're not going to do damage to yourself um, for most of the things you can get from the grocery store for a short window of time. If you're able to follow those kind of checkpoints and just in general, there's something to be said for feeling good. And I think that there's not enough emphasis put on that, um, both in training and in the recovery side. Well, man, I do want to take the time to highlight. So we talked about your professional journey. Uh, over the past year, man, but I want to get into a, a personal journey that you took on and then uh, take a moment to to highlight the the 40 Staple Strong Foundation. So let's, man, let's get heavy for a moment here, but let, let's take it away because we connected at TSAC in 2021 and then had the opportunity to reconnect here recently. And man, it, it, it's been a long year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so super tough that, you know, after we met, uh, coming home and, uh, you know, I'm getting headaches and people don't know this, by the way, this is the first time I've publicly come out and talked about this. Um, but I started getting headaches and they were pretty bad, but I didn't want to be a wimp because whatever. Uh, but I mentioned to my local practitioner, I said, you know, hey, I'm getting headaches. And instead of poo-pooing me and just saying, oh, you know, whatever, tough it out. She literally said to me, she's like, you never complain about anything. Like you don't, you don't like medication, you just that, you know, but you, you really, you know, let's take a look at this because you really keep bringing this up. Well, lo and behold, uh, not only was uh, there were headaches um, when they did the scan, I'll never forget it. I got the phone call from the doctor and they said, yeah, you know, Mr. Newman, I want to tell you, uh, you actually you have a brain tumor. And I said, oh, this is some bad shit right now. Like, you're kidding, right? And he said, no. And what makes this worse was I was told two days before my mother's anniversary where she was diagnosed with a uh, benign brain tumor. Um, and it turned out to be CNS lymphoma. Mm. And so working with her, going through that struggle, immediately you start thinking, again, I go from being healthy and three years prior, standing on Gillette Stadium, hoisting up, hoisting up a national trophy, to it's a very different reality. Um, and so they weren't kidding. And then they hung up the phone and it's like, okay, now what? And so going through that journey, uh, you know, they're told you need to do this now. So you get put into a stat situation where you need to go in and do a craniotomy. And if anybody knows what that is, uh, they take your head, you take a look it up, they flay open, uh, and they actually take a chunk of the skull out to get in it. So that, that really sucked. Um, and then they put you in through a lot of training to be able to um, be okay with things and being okay with, you know, you may come out and have some limitations. And of course, me from a science standpoint, well, how much, what are we talking, this, that, the other thing, they're like, we don't know. And so handling that uncertainty um, was tough. And they said, what we can tell you is this is what's going to happen. Um, and then, you know, you need to be prepared. You have to do your last will and testament. You have to do it. It's all this heavy stuff. And you're like, man, I just like, I just want to have a good summer. Um, but you went through it and again, preparing your family for it, uh, preparing for, you know, if something were to go wrong and the way that they have to talk about that stuff is super sensitive, um, with patients. 
because again, you don't know, and then they won't know until they truly get in there. So we get two weeks out, we get 24 hours out, and you know we had, you know, as a family, had a great dinner, um, and then just kind of got ready to go to to battle. And I look back at a lot of my experience as a strength coach, both how I periodized the front end of that experience and then the backside. Um, I think was really helpful. And so we go in for surgery, you roll up on Fruit Street, uh, go to Mass General, they take you in and you're meeting everybody and uh, it's almost surreal and you have to be okay with dying. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that I think that does something to you that you realize uh, how grateful you are, you realize the relationships you had uh, and you will end. And they told me, they said, you might not know what a, like a dumbbell or a barbell is. You might you know, not know, you might lose chunks of time you know, whether it's time with your family or time with your son, time with anybody, we just don't know. And so you're wheeling in there and you look around and the last thing you see is this kind of almost spaceship uh, operating room. And you look around and you're like, well, shit, this has been good. And then they talk to you and you out. Uh, woke up in the the, the pack you afterwards. Um, and again, you look and the reason why the, the name of the foundation is what it is, is they put 40 staples, you know, into the 10 inch long um, incision. And so, you know, it's all blown out, it's all puffy, and you're disoriented. Um, but I went into what I would tell any athlete as I started doing system check, wiggle my toes, wiggle my fingers. You know, what day is it? Okay, do I, do I remember how to squat? Okay, good, I know what that is. Um, and start working from there. And so 24 hours out, one of the things I started doing, because um, they tell you, uh, well, you, have to, you have to rest. And I think that there's a mental component, just like in athletics, where the worst thing you can do is just sit around and be a victim or sit around and be helpless. So one of the things that I did um, as soon as my swelling came down is I had an aura ring um, and I started trying to have the best sleep. Like I wanted to PR in my sleep. Um, but if you have anesthesia, say on a, you know, whatever, five, six, seven, eight hour surgery, your, your diaphragm's messed up. The muscles are messed up. And so it was actually hard for me to do some of the box breathing. It was hard to do some of the meditation. Um, and so you go through that whole time, then they bring you up into the, the unit where, you know, on the seventh floor where everybody else, um, in oncology has it, um, a tumor. And so you start your process and I'll never forget, you know, and you get your highs and your lows, uh, when the, the goal of the day is to go to the bathroom, it's embarrassing. And I had so much guilt and I had so much embarrassment that I was even in that situation. What do you mean? I can't poop. What do you mean? I have to have someone hold my hand to go to the bathroom. I couldn't take a shower couldn't do all those things. Um, and so get into it and just started that process climbing back out. It sucked for at least two weeks where, you know, you understand from the pain uh, and anybody that's gone through it is that they'll, they'll talk to you about it, but you only get medication on certain times because you're at a max dose level. Um, but you sit there and that, that feeling like a bomb went off in your head. You understand why when people just had enough. And the only way I can describe it is, is that if you've ever had a, a great dinner with your friends and family and you eat and you're like, oh, if I have one more bite, I'm going to get sick. It's weird when that's the way that life felt that you just were like, if this is the way it's going to continue, because we don't know how long the pain's going to last. We don't know if it's uh, going to get better, if it's going to stall, everyone's different. So that was really, really tough. And I, I can't say enough for the nurses and the doctors at Mass General that, again, they made a really terrible time. Um, less terrible and all the steps along the way. And so we went through that through two weeks. And then as we kind of went out, um, just like, again, like a training cycle, eight weeks. And then I got home. I remember my first workout was, uh, the, you remember like piston and post wall marches and it was just get your feet up to get your, you know, your bowels moving and just do it. And then I had a cane 
And I was like, well, if I'm going to have a cane, I'm going to get myself a shillelagh. So I went and ordered a custom shillelagh from Ireland just because that was uh, what I wanted to do to motivate myself. And I started just walking up and down the steps of the house, three steps, right? And just keep going. And then what I realized was in the tumor group, which is a, a group where you meet other people who have gone through what you've gone through, there really isn't a lot of help. There's not a lot of training. And people said to me in my uh, time, they said, you're really intense. I said, well, I'm heavily medicated right now. So this is the most <laughs> mellow version of me. And they're like, they're like, they're like, you don't slow down. And I said, well, that's funny. It's just, I, this is not the culture that I'm used to. And then I looked around and I was like, wow, I bet a lot of other people don't know to periodize their breathing. I don't know if they know to reach out and get support and whether it's PT, OT, whatever. Um, there's a better way of doing this. And so 40 staples came about by just taking everything that I know. And we spent the last year kind of putting together even simple things like gel packs. Like we, we used to get ice, right? As athletes, you throw ice on. Well, when you're at home, you don't have an ice machine, but do you know how many different types of gel packs there are? Soft gel, hard gel, gel that lasts for cold, gel that you know you can wear. And, and again, you can't sleep laying down. You have to sleep sitting up. Okay, well, what about a chair? You know, what about this? And so we've put together a list of things and, you know, nothing that I get commission on, just things that I use that helped me make it suck a little bit less um, and then create a community. And so what we'll be doing is going forward here this year um, is really reaching out because what I didn't realize is that probably within your network or within the people that listen to this podcast, you're going to have more people than you think have brain tumors mm -hmm. and whether it's tumors or cancer or some sort of thing, I just wanted to make sure that there was a place people could go to, to not only make a difference, but also have an impact. And so the website will be going up 40 staples, uh, strong, uh, will go up and then people can either donate uh, and that money will go towards, um, the different causes or the thing we'll have is the, um, backpacks. Cause again, just like if you guys went to a, an away trip, what would you bring? Yeah, you bring your beer. And so, I thought the backpack was a nice way to be able to go and get people to, you know, for 100, 150 bucks, we can put in a charger. Because that's the other thing, too. So you have a brain tumor post surgery. You don't remember if you charge, your phone dies. Well, guess what? How are you going to call for help, mm -hmm. um, for medical assistance? And then just other things that we've done um, throughout the last year to really kind of curate that experience and then make people feel supported. Because I think one of the lines that, you know, one of my buddies said to me was like, remember, recovery um, is, a, is a team sport because anybody who goes through this they take the weight of the world and they won't ask for help especially guys stake-headed guys like myself um that want to take that world on by themselves and, and you don't need to do that and so that's kind of our mission as we go forward to really use a lot of the strength and conditioning stuff to you know again you can't you can't change the cards you were dealt but you can change how you handle it and i just think that if more people knew hey you can go buy yourself these kind of socks or you can go buy yourself this kind of pillow it's going to make a difference. I think people would want to do that. And so that's kind of my mission and, you know, having a, a, an attainable goal. There's 18,000 um, tumors every year. Uh, the National Tumor Foundation is based out of here in Boston over in Newton. So I'm um, trying to work with them and build up something where, you know, how many of those 18,000 can we reach an impact? Because again, I, like I said, I was blessed and fortunate enough to have the experiences I did in strength and conditioning to manage that situation. But I can't imagine what it's like you know, if you didn't start doing your breathing, I didn't, I can't imagine what it's like if you didn't know some of the stuff that I know about the body, you would just feel hopeless, helpless, and anxious. So that's kind of our goal, but I know we didn't want to necessarily get heavy today, but no, I thought it was important I, to put it out there and let people know. No, I'm stoked that we did. Uh, was the, uh, was the tumor benign? Uh, yeah. So anytime I'll tell you, uh, that it is benign. Uh, and so you're good, but you never know. 
because again, I had an individual in our tumor group where, you know, it was benign and then it wasn't. So I think one of the things that they teach you is that it's part of something who you're going to be going forward. Uh, it's something that doesn't define you, but it's something that's going to empower you. And so, uh, for me, I'm lucky, um, been clean and, and everything on that on my end, but it's someone who's at home. They can't, uh, they can't let their guard down. They need to make sure that they go forward every day and kind of have that attack mindset and what a difference, you know, training does, right. Even just getting out and walking. I mean, we've talked about get out, sweat, move, stretch, you know, twist and turn, just do something. What it does to just who you are as a person, it kind of crosses that barrier from body to mind. And that's really where, you know, I hope we can make a big difference because there's not a lot of programming. There's not a lot of programming for people in that space. And so working with other technology companies, you know, obviously I was lucky enough to have my set of plates at the house for rehab and, you know, other stuff to really say, okay, you know, because their big concern is pressure. Okay. Well, pressure goes up. Well, how do I shovel? How do I shovel my driveway? You know, what about if I carry my groceries? How do I play with my kids? You know, and people, people get diagnosed. You know, I, I was young getting diagnosed. People get diagnosed at all different ages. And I just don't think that you can ask someone to spend their whole entire life in a wheelchair or head that direction. Cause if you don't move, you're going to get diabetes. You're going to get some sort of other things. So you might as well give them. So I hope to work with, you know, people like Dr. Kramer, like with you guys and other people in the field to just get it going. Because again, it's such a relief. It's such a relief when you're like, okay, I have my plan. This is what's going to get me back to where I need to be. And I realize that, you know, it's not a linear path. It's going to have ups and downs, but if there's a community to support them, I think it makes a big difference. So wow. thank you guys for letting me bring that out tonight. No, that's great. Yeah. Thank um, you for sharing. And, and Tom will be, he'll be writing some for powerathletehq.com. You got a lot to offer in your experience and your intelligence and passion as a coach. And we want to help bring that out and bring that to as many people as we can. Yeah, no, no, it's good. Yeah. Thank thank you for sharing. Well, cool, man. I hope this will be, uh, this will be the first of many conversations to come in the future, man. So I appreciate you, dude. Thanks for coming on to power athlete radio. Uh, I know you got more social, so where can people learn from you on social and, and follow your journey? Yeah. So bulldog.strength um, on Instagram is kind of what I have. <clears throat> and again, I know I've been told uh, I need to get better at that. But again, um, I like to spend my time in the trenches and, and something I got to work on. But um, you can reach out on Instagram or also shoot me an email. So just at my name. So thomas.newman at hawkendynamics.com. Happy to reach out to people. And again, um, one of the nice things about my current position is I get to do stuff like this. I get to reach out and talk to people from all over the world um, and make an impact. So happy to chat with anybody on all things force plates, all things uh, training or anywhere in between. So, but this has been great. And again, I appreciate you guys getting out there and, and spreading the gospel, you know, each and every episode. So, and very thankful to be a part of it. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.